Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, Dr. Adriana Popescu here with you today with another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I'm really excited to have with us today, Dr. Juliette Morgan. She is a psychiatrist and a neuropsychiatrist based in the Cal Psychiatry San Francisco office. She specializes in the integrative treatment of patients with mood and anxiety disorders, ADHD, neuropsychiatric illness, and healing from trauma. Dr. Morgan is a board-certified neurologist and understands the complex interplay between the structural hardware and emotional software in the brain. Dr. Morgan has been featured in several several media outlets, including including our local station here at KQED, and CBS for her work with COVID-19 patients. And she also has a book coming out, which I'm super excited to talk about. Welcome, Juliet. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, I always like to start off always asking our guests about their own story and how is it that you came to do this work? And I know that you're working with patients in um, a more holistic way, I think, than traditional psychiatry. So I would love to hear more about your journey and how you came to do the work that you're doing. Yeah, sure. It's a great question. Um, So I went to medical school wanting to be an integrative primary care doctor. I had this dream of taking care of the whole family, the whole person, the whole community, Um, But I really wanted to be like a primary care doctor in like the 70s, you know, this um, doctor would show up at your doorstep with a medical bag and take care of anything you had going on. And then I got into medical school and I started, I actually had a neuroanatomy class and I was just hooked. I uh, was fascinated by the brain fascinated by the complex interplay between, again, that hardware and software in the brain and decided I wanted to be a primary care doctor of the brain. Um, And actually I saw a patient, she was an incarcerated woman who had a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure. And it was terrible to witness and also incredibly fascinating to watch how someone's psychological problem could hijack their nervous system and their neurologic pathways in the brain. If we think about the brain as a super highway system, her, probably her trauma pathways were just chock full of cars. They were in gridlock and those cars were taking the motor exit, the seizure exit that they never meant to take. And I was watching her convulsing in front of me and then looking at her EEG on her scalp and it was normal and and silent. It just was incredible to see. And I kept asking people, you know, what are we going to do? How do we help her? And people were kind of like, oh, we, you know, we'll send her to psychiatry. We don't really know what to do. And I thought, oh my gosh, these are the people that I care about. This is what I want to do. I want to take care of people who don't fit into any bucket. I want to take care of people um, who were told, like, I don't really know what to do with you. Um, 
And I wanted to bring perspectives from many different forms of healing to my patients. So that's how I ended up. I did a neurology residency first. I, I thought, okay, maybe I'll just be a behavioral neurologist. And then I became far, I was far too fascinated by talking to people. You know, I was like a good neurologist. I was checking reflexes. I was checking tone. And then I couldn't get out of people's rooms. <laughs> so I was talking to them about their story. And so I went on, I completed um, a second residency. I'm a board certified neurologist. I completed a second residency in psychiatry. And then even with that skill set, I just knew I needed more. So I did an integrative medicine fellowship at UCSF here in San Francisco in their Osher Center for Integrative Medicine so that I could bring together all of this knowledge, uh, but in a kind of evidence-based rigorous academic framework. Mm -hmm. So when you use that term integrative psychiatry, how is that different from traditional psychiatry? Because I think most people have this idea that, you know, you go to, the, to a psychiatrist these days, it used to be different, uh, but these days, mostly you go and they you meet with them for maybe 30 minutes or less and they write you a prescription and off you go. How is what you do different from that? When I think that all medicine should be integrative medicine, I don't understand why it's siloed in the first place. So, you know, I can't really speak for how it's different. I mean, I think they're fabulous psychiatrists. They're not so good psychiatrists. They're, you know, I, I don't really know exactly what people are doing in the community. I, um, I can be very disappointed by the care that my patients receive, but I know they're wonderful kind of biomedical psychiatrists who are actually thinking in a really integrative way. Um, so, you know, I think what I'm doing though is, uh, you know, making a really conscious effort to make it a different type of experience for my patients than assembly line medicine, which doesn't work for patients or physicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. And so you're looking not just at the brain chemistry, right? Which is what I think you, when you refer to like biological, you know, psychiatry is very focused on how like the biochemistry of the brain is doing, for example, like what else are you looking at when you're looking at a whole, a whole person? Yeah, so um, I, it's exactly what you said. It's the whole person. So I can't tell you, I think I'm a rare psychiatrist and that I'm, I'm really interested in how your digestive system is working. I might ask you how you're pooping if I think it's related to what's happening with you. You know, that's my organ. The enteric nervous system is my organ. Um, you know, what's happening with someone's skin that also feels like my, I mean, it's the whole, again, this whole person, this, um, this dream that I had, that I was going to be a primary care doctor. I am the primary care doctor of the brain and the nervous system. Um, so that is what I'm asking people who come to see me. But I also, what I tell people is I say, we're going to come together and at the end of our meeting, we're going to come up with a shared understanding of what brought you here and what you're struggling with. And for me, that means trying to understand someone's psychological world to the best of my ability. I mean, it's only a beginning formulation, that first meeting, but trying to really listen deeply, trying to connect with some, any intuition that's coming up. I mean, my feelings are my stethoscope, right? I, I hung up my stethoscope, my feelings are my stethoscope. Um, and then looking for, so there's the psychological, then there's the biological. What do I think is happening with the networks in their brain? What areas in the brain do I think are affected? 
what is going on with their neurotransmitter levels and then what's happening with their body systemically? Do they have elevated inflammation? Should I be looking for another syndrome that's anemic? Are there thyroid issues, vitamin issues? Is this actually MCAS? You know, that's my job to think about the whole person, the whole body. Um, so that's what I try and do in my, in my visits. Mm -hmm. And I think some people, maybe you can share with us some examples of that, because I don't know if the average person really understands um, how uh, other medical conditions can actually mimic psychological conditions. Someone might get a diagnosis, for example, of depression or anxiety, but it's not really about, you know, the, the neurotransmitters in their brain, something else is going on, right? Absolutely. Anyone who has depression should be screened for comic, common mimics. So someone with hypothyroid can be really depressed. Someone with vitamin D deficiency can look depressed. Someone with an untreated MTHFR mutation, we can talk more about that. I know you know a lot about that. Someone with really elevated homocysteine levels who really needs to be repleted with L-methylfolate. You know, that's not something that you're going to target necessarily um, with antidepressants. You're missing a piece of that treatment puzzle. Someone who has, again, I'm, I don't know why MCAS is coming out tonight, but someone who has mast cell activation syndrome, where their allergic system in their body is dysregulated, overactivated. They have all this inflammation. Inflammation changes the brain. Inflammation lights up these networks related to depression you know, is there another part of this person that needs to be addressed um, before that depression is going to shift? Um, and that's my job as a physician. It's also my job as a physician to look at the medications you're on and to see what might be interacting. You know, some of our common sleep medications like Ambien can give someone a pretty rip-roaring depression. Mm. Gotta watch out for medications. Um, beta blockers, while I like them for anxiety, sometimes they can also be precipitants of depression. So, you know, really understanding someone's medical status and then thinking thoughtfully about what else could be going on without, you know, and this is where I have to, I like to stay within an evidence-based framework without going into, you know, kind of wallet toxic, incredibly expensive labs that don't necessarily shift or change treatment. Um, but I know, I mean, people are working in that area as well and find a lot of healing there. It's just not what I do. And that would be kind of a, a functional medicine practitioner who would do that. I think I judicious, judiciously pick labs that I think are really going to change management. And what a beautiful cat. <laughs> yes. My, my feline occasionally makes an appearance. He doesn't want to be on camera, but he allows himself to be his butt or his tail or something will show up every once in a while. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Um, so you, you use this term before when we talked wallet toxicity, and I had never heard that before. I love yeah. that terminology. And, and I love that you're so conscious about that because so many, you know, people would be like, let's order it all. Let's do like a full workup. And that can get into, especially if you're paying out of pocket, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. So that's really cool that you have that consciousness, you know, and your concern for your patients. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about someone's well-being. I want to, you know, ideally alleviate suffering and make their lives better. And finances are a real consideration. And so thinking 
about timing for follow-up, thinking about, you know, I, I, you know, whether I'm the right person for them to see, do I have other referrals in my network that might be in network for them, for their insurance. Um, but also, yeah, not prescribing supplements uh, that don't have, you know, medical evidence that I don't think are going to change management. And then, you know, picking labs that I think are reliable and that really do accurately reflect the status of the brain and body rather than just a value at any given point in time that isn't validated in our medical literature. Right, right. Um, and the thing you said about, I think it was um, methylfolate, like I know that uh, at the rehab where I work, they're, they're looking more and more, they, they've started doing some of this genetic testing, you know, on folks and they can see where somebody's not able to metabolize something in like the anti antidepressant. And so sometimes they're adding the supplements, like some sort of something that allows the patient to metabolize the medicine you're prescribing for them better. And I think, again, that's something that's newer that folks haven't really understood up until now. Yeah. So right now there's limited utility in full genetic panels for uh, for psychiatric problems. There are a few that are useful to get um, to understand again, how somebody metabolizes medications. It's not something I do upfront. And this is another area where I think I, I am thinking about wallet toxicity where um, I could order a you know, $350 panel or I can get a single cheap lab mm -hmm. to look at a metabolite. And that's the one I'm gonna go for because that's gonna tell me how someone actually utilizes, you know, the substance that I'm worried about and whether they would respond to repletion. And I'm not going to get to getting genome mind until, or, or whatever gene panel we're thinking about until we really feel like, Hey, there's something happening with the way that you're metabolizing these medications. But often I'm able to understand you know, just from pathophysiology, is this a central sensitization syndrome? Is this someone whose nervous system is, is so dysregulated, they're in fight or flight, or they have a dysautonomia, and that's part of the reason they're having either medication sensitivity or intolerance. Um, so I do, I will get those panels, but they're not something I'm getting on everyone. And our medical literature, I mean, there's just a really nice review out this year or last year that showed that um, with the exception of one or two items on those panels, they don't change management. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you mentioned trauma. Um, well, I mean, that's how I interpreted it, but the person whose nervous system is so dysregulated, often it's because they've had chronic trauma, you know, uh, chronic PTSD, for example, you know, where it's recurrent over and over again, that fight, flight, freeze response is constantly getting activated. Tell us more, because I know you have a specialty kind of in working with trauma. Tell us more about that, how that works and, and how it impacts one's nervous system and, and what you do with that. Yeah. So I wish I could give you like a one size fits all answer. But as you know, um, while trauma can look similar person to person, uh, the journey can look really different for every person individually. So you know, the first thing for me is um, I'm often not working as someone's therapist. I do do some therapy, but not a lot. 
And so when someone's telling me about a history of trauma, I actually tend to not go into the details of that trauma and that encounter, because if you do tell me about it, I want to be able to walk through it with you. And, um, and that's not a one session visit. That's, I mean, it's not at the frequency, and that's really best done with someone like you, who's going to walk hand in hand with someone. But what I do want to understand are the feelings that have resulted from that trauma and the experience in the world and the experience of their nervous system that has resulted from that trauma. So really hearing that someone doesn't feel safe anywhere they go, they don't feel safe or that their trauma stimulus, also known as a trigger. I feel like these days, like triggers just batted around so much for the lot for a lot of people. It doesn't really have true meaning, but a trauma stimulus is kicked up anywhere they go or they find themselves all of a sudden seeking safety, you know, leaving a classroom, leaving work, you know, leaving a restaurant because they are feeling so deeply unsafe. And so for me, the first step is trying to really understand that experience and, uh, and get a feel for what's happening with their nervous system and then helping them to choose either natural products or pharmacologic therapies that can help with that experience in the world and thinking about lifestyle medicine interventions that work to gently shift the imbalance in the nervous system from fight or flight back into something more balanced with rest and digest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. Um, and I, and I think there's been historically, at least coming from my side, the psychological side, you know, there's been this, I like that hasn't even been considered before. Like then you have a nervous system or you have inflammation or these things that are happening with the body that are so woven into that experience. We haven't been like, we think, well, we can, you know, traditional psychology, you know, would say, well, we need to talk about it. But it, when the person is talking about it, they keep reactivating that, oh, that same response over and over again. That's not necessarily helping. So I love that, you know, we're having this conversation because I think um, there's just been a lot of lack of information about how it all works together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just brought up something really important to highlight, which is that, you know, medicine is a team sport. And it was wild to me when I, you know, in neurology, we work in these big teams and medical school, we work in these big teams. And suddenly in psychiatry, I was taking care of people alone and it's not the best practice in medicine. I think it, you know, working together, collaborating together, having a shared understanding of the trajectory of a patient, supporting each other, you know, that's the joy in collaborative care. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I love my work uh, on a team where we have everyone all by the nursing and the psychiatrist and, and the therapists. And, you know, we're getting so much, um, everybody has a piece of the puzzle, right? No one practitioner alone has all the pieces. So having that and, and in private practice, that's been trickier, right? Like I do try to collaborate when I can with someone's psychiatrist or whoever else is involved in their care, but that doesn't always happen in the, in the, you know, sort of, uh, individual practice world. Yeah. 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 Um, so you had mentioned before, I wanted to go back to one thing, um, when you talked about gut health, can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
especially this piece around um, like the serotonin, for example, more serotonin is produced in the gut than, than in the brain. What, what can you tell us about all that? Yeah, so it's a pretty powerful connection between the gut and the brain. So that starts with even the microbial content of the GI tract. We know that there are, there's this dysbiosis where the balance of bacteria can be off in the gut, that, that can impact mood. We know that probiotics are a pretty reasonable treatment when you think about adding on a natural product in depression. Um, again, that enteric nervous system is connected via the vagal nerve to your autonomic nervous system, your fight, again, this, this balance between fight or flight, rest and digest. 90% of the serotonin in the body is made by the gut. Um, you know, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And, you know, and I can talk a little bit about diet and brain health, but we now know a lot more about, you know, which diets correlate with brain health, but it all feels like, and of course it's all connected. So um, thinking about how someone is digesting, and then I think about how someone's digesting their emotions as well. Mm -hmm. and trying to think about this psychosomatic or somatopsychic experience of the emotional life and the gut has to be a part of, of patient care. No, not all. I mean, some people come to me with really straightforward depression, ADHD. They want to start a medication. That's what we're doing. But you know, for people who want more integrative work, I'm ready to go there. Mm -hmm. And what other kinds of... Um like therapies do you sometimes suggest for your patients, right? I mean, obviously psychotherapy, you know, that more my realm, but like what other kinds of things have you found helpful as supplemental uh, therapies? Sure. So again, it's such a broad question, but I have a really low threshold to bring in our rehab experts. So, and not your kind of rehab, my kind of neurologic rehab experts, although your rehab experts are important too. Um, so you know, does somebody need something like pacing exercise therapy for their chronic fatigue syndrome that's impacting their depression? Um, do they have a sense of disequilibrium, this kind of vertigo in the world? Do we need to think about vestibular rehab? Is their gut really impacting their emotional life? And have they been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome? But I think that they need SIBO testing, small intestinal, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth testing, which can be, you have to advocate for them to get it. Um, you know, if I'm hearing a history of, you know, dysautonomia or POTS syndrome, plus rashes, plus, you know, a lot of allergy symptoms or even just allergy symptoms and a lot of depression, you know, I might think more about MCAS. Um, and then other, you know, I, I think I try and listen hard to what a patient wants psychologically so I can pair them with a therapist that will be the best fit for them. Is it something behavioral? You know, would they benefit from multiple days a week seeing an analyst? Um, just trying to listen to the patient's goals and to how they're understanding their psychological world and what they're looking for um, in our session and, and then trying to find someone that's a good fit because we know from the literature that in terms of finding a therapist, it's probably less important what type of therapy you get. It's more important what the quality of the attachment is to that therapist. 
Yeah, yeah. I think in when they do research on the efficacy of psychotherapy, the two main like most determining, you know, if they do like a pie chart of what are the most influential aspects, it's the client's motivation to change and and the relationship with the therapist. And then the modalities you use, that's a smaller piece of the pie. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I certainly use plenty of natural products and I use medications and I do personalized, do personalized dosing, big fan of liquid formulation. I mean, I'll have people start a drop a day mm-hmm. and then get up to a personalized dose for them. So I think as long as you're in within the realm of safety and, um, if it's low risk intervention, um, you know, I'm really happy to find personalized dosing for people, um, and I think that's what a lot of people need to be able to tolerate um, psychiatric medications. Yeah, and and this brings me to another question that I have about chronic illness. So I'm somebody who knows this topic very well, having you know suffered with Lyme disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, allergic to everything, like the whole nine yards for almost twenty years, and um, there was absolutely not one single thing that was like the magic bullet. I had to really go through multiple types of holistic therapies and a lot of different practice. I had a whole team of people working with me to try to restore balance to my system because everything was off. You know, the thyroid was off and the neurotransmitters were off and my gut health was a mess. And I mean, it was such, it was like a tangled ball of yarn that no one person I think could have been able to disentangle. So can you tell us about your work with chronic conditions? And, and now with COVID, you're working with, with folks who, who are having the long COVID. So tell us more about that. Yeah. So um, I was in my second residency and in my fellowship at UCSF when we started seeing all these patients with long COVID. Um, really with COVID that just didn't get better. We didn't even have a name for it. And along with my colleague, Dr. Megan Johnson, who's a really fabulous palliative care medicine doctor here actually at Laguna Honda. um, She and I put together an integrated medicine recovery skills group um, for people with long COVID. So we've taken care of many patients and we did it for over a year and there's 35 or 40 people with long COVID that we looked after in that group. And then I've continued to follow people with long COVID ever since. And it's everything that we've talked about. It's the same kind of medicine, Um, whole brain, whole whole body. Um, And looking at the evidence we do have in other conditions, but also welcoming Mm -hmm. orphaned conditions um, and saying, you know, you've been cast into the shadows. Let's bring you back into the light. Like we can't deny it anymore. this is, you know, long COVID is real. All these other long illnesses are real. And just because we don't know how to treat them doesn't mean that we can invalidate people. And, you know, the time is now mm-hmm. to make sure everybody's getting good care. And are you seeing results with that? Um, how, are the, how are your patients doing? Yeah. So I can refer both to the literature and then my own practice. So in my own practice, it can be a slow recovery process. And it, as you've said, it takes a village and we have to build a medical team around someone. Um, But for the most part, I have seen people make steady improvement. This is not everyone. 
but there is improvement. Um, and you see that, you know, specifically, like there was a, just a study that looked at cognitive symptoms and that by six months are improved by a year in many people they have resolved. So, you know, I could talk on and on about long COVID, but, um, and long COVID in the brain, but we, I'm, I'm in my clinical practice seeing people regain some quality of life. There can be setbacks. I mean, you know a lot about MECFS. And that's the kind of fatigue that people get in long COVID. And it's really easy to end up in a flare. But, um, you know, especially with someone in your corner who's watching you, who's caring about you, who's following you, um, you know, people can look better. And people have, not everyone, but the majority of people that I have seen are looking better at this point. That's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be invalidating to those who are not, mm -hmm. you know, um, but, and, and that's my, only my sample size. I'm not seeing hundreds of these people. That's sure. My, that's my experience. Well, and it's so, it's so new, right? I mean, this is just the last couple of years. Um, but we do know a lot, I think, like you said, from other conditions, especially autoimmune. I see a lot of overlap um, with mm -hmm. various autoimmune conditions and depression and trauma and all of those things. Like we certainly see addiction, obviously, you know, we see all those things at play interacting with each other from your angle, you know, how, how do you see someone's chronic illness or an autoimmune condition affecting their mental health? Mm -hmm. Well, I have yet to take care of someone. I mean, and I guess I have a skewed sample, but to take care of someone with long COVID who didn't have mental health symptoms, mm -hmm. um, you know, inflammation can cause depression just in and of itself. New illness can cause an adjustment disorder. When the body is ailing, it sends a message that there's something wrong. And so anxiety kicks in really strongly. People can end up with really debilitating anxiety um, and then are potentially left with these symptoms in the body and have to retrain their brain how to live with some of these sensations and not interpret everything as, as you know, the house is on fire um, and have it, and you're nodding your head. It sounds like you've had that experience of having to retrain the brain around this new way of being in the body, which is not easy to do. I'm humbled when I watch people do it and do it, you know, and pick up such incredible coping. Um, but we know that, so, I mean, I, I, the long COVID literature is the one that I know best, but we know that, you know, after a long COVID infection, not breakthrough, we don't have this data yet. And this is a preprint out of Cambridge. So sorry if you don't like preprints, but I like this group a lot. But, um, you know, we see that in the acute period to, you know, subacute to then post-acute, some inflammatory markers in the brain neuroinflammatory markers go down. But one, tau, just pretty powerful marker of neuroinflammation, just keeps going up. So we don't really have, and we don't know whether that's going to plateau. I mean, I, hopefully there's going to be more studies. We know the uh, brain atrophy data. So, you know, in younger adulthood, on a given year, you're looking at like 0.2% brain atrophy per year older adulthood, 0.3% brain atrophy per year. After COVID infection, again, not breakthrough, but after COVID infection, the average is 0.7, anywhere from 0.2 to 2%. And where is this 
atrophy, it's in limbic regions. It's in the regions in the brain that control emotions. Mm -hmm. And then this kind of cortical olfactory area. So areas related to sense of smell. And the question is, is the loss in the limbic center all because of loss of smell? Is it like kind of sense of smell is so tied limbically or was there an extension that went limbically or is there just this ongoing neuroinflammation in the brain? And we don't have those answers, but you know, people who come to me with long COVID and depression and anxiety, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Then there's a really good, again, hardware reason why your software is malfunctioning. Yeah. I, I like that analogy. And, and I, I think there's been that schism, the siloing, if you will, of, of providers and modalities where I'm looking at the software typically, and you're looking more at the hardware and why are we not like talking to each other and looking at all yeah. the different, all the different pieces of it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And how it's all, and then how it's all connected. Um, I know this is a broad question, but it's just, it occurred to me to ask you this um, because I know uh, we certainly see it a lot again in, in our rehab population, but this idea of treatment resistant depression, like what is that um, or refractory depression it has different names, but uh, people who have tried, you know, various antidepressants and they haven't seemed to work when, when someone comes in saying that, or you receive a referral from another you know, practitioner who's using that terminology, what are some of the things that come to your mind that might be going on for that person? Well, the first thing I think is this poor person to be struggling and to still be depressed after trying all of these medications, that they actually may be actually quite resilient and uh, that I hope I can help. My next question is always like, what does that mean? You know, we have a really big, beautiful trial called the STAR-D trial. And most of the time when I get somebody who has treatment-resistant depression, they're only in like tier one of the STAR-D trial, maybe it's tier two. And there are a lot of other agents that I can use. Now, sometimes someone really do tr does truly have treatment-resistant depression, and then you have to get a little bit more creative. There's a role for stimulants, not in your population, but in other populations, a role for stimulants. Literature supports that potential looking at hormones, especially in women who are perimenopausal and menopausal, men making sure their testosterone levels look adequate. And then I don't do transcranial magnetic stimulation, but I believe in it. So referrals for TMS, referrals for ketamine, referrals to clinical trials. I worked on the psilocybin for depression trial at UCSF. Um, I was a part of that trial. Uh, so referring people to trials and um, trying to mobilize some degree of hope. Um, but most of the time, you know, people aren't all the way through yet. Um, but the most important thing for me is when I see someone, I try and listen for whether I can help. And if I don't think I can help, I don't do TMS, you know, I'm not gonna waste your time. Um, uh, so, you know, I think knowing the bounds you may have this experience. I had this experience where I can feel the bounds of my skill set. Mm -hmm. I feel like I bring quite a few skills, but like sometimes I'm like, no, actually, I'm not the right person for you. But I see plenty of people with tumor resistant depression and, you know, tend to have a pretty good hit rate. But it's also, it can be hard, hard, hard to tackle. 
Mm-hmm. It's much easier with a very good therapist on board. Yeah. Really hard if there isn't that. Well, I think people still might have this idea, again, sort of mainstream idea that if I'm depressed or anxious, I go to the doctor, they give me a pill and that'll fix it. And as we know, there's often a lot of reasons behind, again, it's not just about the chemistry of the brain, but it's also what is your life's experience and and how are you seeing yourself through what lens do you see yourself in the world? What are the beliefs you carry about yourself? Like all of that, the software piece is huge. Uh, So unfortunately, I remember years ago, you know, when I was an intern, um, the the psychiatrist we worked with at the agency said to me, you know, um, the reality is people think that they're going to take a pill and it's going to make it go away, but they need to do the work. They have to do therapy and do the work to look at like what's going on in their life that's contributing to this condition yeah i tell people don't have a medication to take away your sadness um i i feel torn what i want a medication to take away sadness probably i'm gonna really want to reduce suffering but i don't have one (laughs) um and it would be robbing someone of the kind of human experience but i can often prescribe a medication that will make it make you more able to touch that sadness with your therapist make you more able to feel comfortable enough to venture into your psychological world with your therapist so that the real change can happen yeah um yeah yeah and i think we see that also at the rehab like the perspective is like the medication is there to help stabilize people because they're coming in, you know, a wreck. By the time you get to rehab, you're usually a mess. <laughs> Your body's a mess and everything. And the medication really has a role in stabilizing people enough for us, the therapists, to be able to do the work with them um, and help and, and yeah. to, for them to be able to handle it, right? Without completely, you know, falling yeah. apart. Yeah, you do really important work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we both do, and and I love this idea of of the the team approach and how important that is. So, I mean, I think in our conversation, that's what really I've wanted to highlight is that it's super important to to work with multiple people if you can, and for us as as professionals to be consulting with one another and collaborating. Um, and you're part of a group practice now here in San Francisco. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. You, and I believe you guys are in LA also. Yeah, so Cal Psychiatry serves people all over California. It is a team of really warm-hearted, I think really bright, engaged, pretty academically-minded psychiatrists. And we all have this goal of coming together and providing exceptional care for patients. Um, It's a very collaborative group. We love working with therapists. um, And it's run by Josephine McNary, Dr. McNary, who's really our wonderful fearless leader. Um, And we work with people, all different types of people all over California. Um, I see people also in person. I see people via telemedicine and in person in my office in San Francisco and soon in Marin. Wonderful. Wonderful. So you are also coming out with a book. Tell us about that. That's very exciting. Yeah. So long illness is everything that we talked about. It's 
um, initially it was a long COVID book and then it couldn't be just for long COVID. It needed to be for anyone still suffering with symptoms that just didn't go away. Mm -hmm. um, and that maybe fall outside of these buckets in conventional biomedicine um, and end up repeatedly invalidated. We wanted to give someone the experience of being in our skills group, of seeing us, but this handbook that they could take with them, that they could take medical appointments, they could take to their family, that they could use themselves, that was filled with knowledge and survivor stories and skills. Um, that they could add to their toolkit and build their recovery network so that people in any place in the U.S. could replicate the kind of care that we give to our patients here. Um, so we're excited. Uh, we love our publisher, Hachette, and it'll be out this winter. Wonderful. And we'll put a link in the show notes for people if they want to pre-order and how they can find that. So um as we wind this down, I guess we've covered so much territory. It's been really cool. Um, is there any kind of final thoughts you want to leave our audience with? I don't think so. Um, I think I mean, dealing with mental health struggles is hard and wanting care that's personalized for you that feels like it draws on many different ways of healing, that that's okay to want to need um, and to want personalized medicine. It's gonna be the way of the future. It, it should be happening now. And that if you're suffering, you're deserving of the care that's gonna feel really helpful for you. So thank you. And it's, it's so clear how much you care for your patients, you know, and, and I love this individualized approach. It really, I agree wholeheartedly. I think it's exactly what's required in this day and age, not yeah. the cookie cutter factory line style that yeah. some third-party payers might be interested in. <laughs> yeah, no, that doesn't work for anyone. No, exactly. So um, advocating for people to seek out whatever kind of care they think, what they know intuitively they need. I think that's really important and that we professionals really honor and listen to, like you, you know, so beautifully stated, what our clients' experiences and what their story is, and to not try to fix the, fit them into some sort of like two-dimensional box, right, or bucket, yeah. as you, as you said. So, um, I'm super grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you, and thank you for okay. being on the show. Um, if people want to find you on the web, what would be uh, the best way for them to do that? Yeah, www.calpsychiatry.com. You'll see my link. Talks about me, my bio, and uh, has a couple of videos. And uh, I also recently gave UCSF Grand Rounds on long COVID. I think that that recording is also available online. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Julia. It's been a pleasure. Thank my you. Pleasure. Thank you, everyone in the audience, for tuning in. And if you like the show, please do share it follow it, comment, like it, whatever format you saw it or heard it in so that we can get this out, this information out to more people and uh, really empower people to know that there are so many healing modalities out there and that um, one size does not fit all when it comes to mental health and healing. So tune in next time, Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.